0: Well, the Apostle Paul was a a great teacher. He was a fantastic teacher for more reason than one. Uh, But one of the reasons that we're going to see today that made Paul such an effective uh, teacher of theology, such an effective Bible teacher, is his use of analogy. We as a people group, as human beings, we tend to, whether we recognize it or not, we really appreciate analogies, metaphors, things like that. They help us understand teachings. This is one of, just as a side note to begin with, this is one of the things that makes the doctrine of the Trinity so difficult. When we try to teach the doctrine of the Trinity, people are constantly reaching for analogies to help us understand this complicated system. And the reason that's a problem is because none of the analogies ever accurately represent the Trinity, Uh, But why do we do that? It's because we understand that if we give someone like a three-leaf clover, water, and and gas, and ice, and all that, these metaphors somewhat help people understand. What we're going to see today in our text, if you would open to 2 Timothy chapter 2, is the Apostle Paul is going to explain the Christian life using three separate analogies. He's going to compare the Christian life, compare the pursuit of Christian life to worldly pursuits so we can understand a little bit better about what Christianity is about and what we are supposed to think of Christianity as being about. We are going to pick up in verse 3 of chapter 2 and read through verse 7. I would invite you to read along uh, as we are going to... um, Press on in our sermon series in the pastoral epistles, and I uh, just remind us as I try every week that these are the very words of God. Second Timothy chapter two, verse three share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And it is the hard working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So as we see in this brief text, the Apostle Paul immediately breaks out into three different analogies, three different human comparisons, if you will, for how Timothy is to conduct himself in the Christian life. And another thing that made the Apostle Paul here such a a capable teacher is if you'll notice that the three analogies he utilizes are unique and important to his culture. The culture of the church was a Greco-Roman city with a large Jewish background, right? So in Ephesus, we have... Greco-Roman Gentiles and we have many Jewish converts as well. So we've got three sort of cultures making up this people group. There's Roman culture, there's a Greek culture, and there's a Jewish culture. And Paul appeals to every one of them to help us understand the Christian life. He appeals to the Roman culture by bringing up this concept of soldier, right? That's what Rome was known for, was their vast armies, their conquest, world dominion. Uh, They had centurions and posts, all over the place. This was a Roman comparison. But then he also appeals to the Olympics. He appeals to sport. He appeals to athletics, which, as we know, comes from Greece. It's that, that, that Greek thought to compete in the Olympics. This athletic culture was very much part of the Greek culture. And if you read your Bible from Genesis all the way through, you will find that God's Jews, the Jewish people, his chosen people in Israel, have always been an agricultural community. They've always been steeped in agriculture. And this is why if you read through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly appealing to food and crops and things that his Jewish audience would understand because this was an agricultural community. So the Apostle Paul compares the Christian life to a farmer. A soldier, an athlete, and a farmer is represented uh, of the culture in front of him. And I think what's, f- what's interesting about this is that I would argue that these are all, uh, imper- they're, they're all important to our culture here in Roswell too. Um, Really, uh, one of the things that makes Roswell so unique is someone who's just moved here can definitely attest is obviously the alien culture. Uh, And and unfortunately, I don't mean to disappoint, but I don't know of any text in scripture where Paul appeals to extraterrestrial life to make any sort of comparison. So I think he's left that one off the table for us. But all of these other uh, other elements are unique and, and prevalent in our culture. I mean, I live right by the military institute. And so I can't step outside at all and not see cadets walking around in their camouflage or in their, you know, those those amazing uniforms they have. And so I'm constantly thinking now about the military and soldiering. And I know that we have uh, former military members in our own congregation. And so unlike any other place I've ever lived, Roswell has put the concept of military endeavor on my mind like never before. And also, um, just the other day, I took a friend to the airport and I decided to take a scenic route back and I drove around and I saw all the farms out and and I remembered that like my last town, Roswell is a very agricultural community as well, dairy and farm life and so um, soldiering and farming are unique to our culture and although I don't think Roswell is specifically known for its love of athletics. I think anybody who lives in America lives in a city that's in love with athletics. That's just kind of part of American culture at large. And so I don't think that we are as foreign to these analogies as other people may be. And so they're really useful for us as well. So how does Paul utilize soldiering, athletics, and farming to describe the Christian life in these three points? Well, let's begin with the first one. What we're going to see is that Paul here is using these analogies to make three what I do find to be distinct points. Uh, in other words, I don't think he's trying to make the same point over and over again. I think they're distinct points, but they're undoubtedly and inevitably extremely related. So we're going to see three distinct yet related points and ha- how he uses these analogies to communicate a point. And in, in the first one I'm describing this, here's Paul's first point. The Christian life is a pursuit of devotion. Christians pursue devotion Here's why I say that. Look at his first analogy, which is a little bit more extended than the rest. Verse 3. He tells Timothy to share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Paul loved this analogy all throughout the New Testament. He describes Christianity in terms of warfare, spiritual warfare. He calls Christians soldiers on multiple occasions. This was a favorite analogy of Paul. And he tells Timothy to suffer. That's kind of bleak. Your job as a Christian is to suffer. And, and, and when you do that, you're being good at your job. That's a good thing. Suffer as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He calls Timothy to a life of suffering ultimately. And then why? Well, he explains that because soldiers themselves sort of dedicate them, their lives to suffering. All right, when you sign up for the military, even if maybe your nation's not... In any wars, you know that at any point in time, once you enlist, once you sign up, you have now given your body and your life to bloodshed. You, you 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 essentially sign up for suffering. It may not it may not come, but you give yourself to be willing to pay the ultimate price. And he is calling Timothy to give yourself over to suffering as well. And he says in verse 4, you see no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So what's Paul saying? This, this concept of soldiers not getting entangled in civilian pursuits, what he's saying is once you're enlisted and once you're on duty, you have to give your life up and focus on one primary goal. Right? You, you, anything that might distract you from your mission is not part of your job. Once you're enlisted, you're no longer a civilian. You're now an enlisted man and you have a goal, you have directives, you have objectives and you cannot get entangled with anything outside of that objective. You can't be distracted. The soldier has to be a focused person. The soldier has to be a single-minded person. He has to be devoted to a single unique cause and he can't allow things to distract him from that goal. And Paul says that is the same as the Christian life. We have a single devotion. We have an objective in front of us and anything that would cause us to break from that objective is not proper for us. We need to be, real, be willing to let go of and stop pursuing anything that gets in the way of our ultimate pursuit. And he elaborates that on that by giving an interesting thing. You know, when I think of a soldier, I don't often think of someone who's, in love with those who enlist them, but I think that's maybe just unique to our culture. But look at what he says. Why does the soldier do this? Why is he, in Paul's perspective, willing to suffer, and why is he willing to per, to, to get rid of these civilian pursuits in order to pursue something with more devotion, with more focus, with more single-mindedness? Well, he says because... Since it is his aim, the end of verse four, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. He tells us that the Christian life is a single devotion. We pursue one thing and we don't let ourselves to get distracted from that. And he essentially says why? Because the one who enlisted you is worthy of that devotion. This is amazing. He, the way he sort of smuggles in our motive here. Right? You think, and he he talks about the one who enlisted him. So in other words, what Paul's saying is that as an enlister in in the Roman army, he was coming and gathering people and gathering men to build an army. There was a bit of pride in that. Right? We sort of see it in in our culture more in, in like the NFL draft. Right, like you want to go number one overall. You want to go to a team who wants you. You want to be enlisted by someone who wants you, who sees value in you, who has pride in you. And Paul is using that to his advantage here in the same way that an enlister says, I want you. I want you to be on my team. I want you to fight for me. Paul says there's some joy in that. There's some pride in that. And in the same way, the Christian life is no different. We have this great commander-in-chief in the heavens, and he has called you. He has drawn you to himself. He has chosen you. And so Paul says in that same way, should we not seek to please the one who has enlisted us? Should we not seek to please the one who called us and set us apart and drew, him, drew us to him? Jesus Christ has enlisted us for the greatest purpose on earth and he is the holy and perfect enlister. And so it should be our desire to please the one who enlisted us. It should be our desire to focus on Christ, to focus on what Christ calls us to focus on, and be willing to set anything that distracts us aside. Just as military men give themselves to devotion, Christ is worth our focus, He's worth our suffering, He's worth our devotion. But he moves on from that to make a second point about using athletics as his analogy. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So he uses an athlete to tell us this, that not only is the Christian life one where we pursue devotion, but the Christian life is one where we pursue obedience. All right, he takes these athletes and he reminds us that you can't win, you're not going to win if you have any athletic pursuits if you cheat. When I read this, I could not help but uh, think of uh, Lance Armstrong. I refresh our memories a little bit about Lance Armstrong. Who's Lance Armstrong? Well, he was an American cyclist, and he competed in the Tour de France, which is not as popular here in America as this around the world, but it's still sort of the premier cycling race. It's one of the most competitive athletic endeavors a person can set their life to. And many uh, can make a compelling argument that it's probably the most grueling athletic event that a person can set their life to. And there are men who dedicate their entire lives to cycling that never ever get to race in that race. And there are men who maybe get there but have almost no hope of ever winning. And Lance Armstrong, coming from a country where cycling is not as valued and competitive as it is around the rest of the world, managed not just to win it, but to win it, I think it was seven times in a row. Something before he did it, people claimed, was humanly impossible. And he didn't just do it as an American, and he didn't just do it multiple times in a row, year in and year out. He did it after having survived and battled serious cancer. So someone who's treating cancer, suffering from cancer, overcoming cancer, goes across the world and essentially accomplishes what is humanly impossible. And so all throughout his his career, he's constantly being tested, and people are just saying there's no way that he's actually doing this in his own strength. There's no way. And he denied, and he was never caught, but unfortunately, what they said was true. What seemed too good to be true was, in fact, too good to be true. He was caught blood doping, and after that, he came out and confessed to using multiple performance-enhancing drugs. Lance Armstrong was a cheater. So what did they do? They stripped him of all those wins. Why? Well, it's obvious. He broke the rules. You don't get the crown. You don't get the trophy. You don't get the, the honor and the victory if you don't compete according to the rules. And Paul says the Christian life is the same way. Now, this is going to hit really hard, but we're going to break it down for a second. But this is essentially what Paul's saying. You don't get to expect a victor's crown if you don't obey God's law. If you don't obey God's rules, there will be no victory for you. Now, here's why that's scary, because that, what does that sound like Paul's saying? It sounds like he's saying you have to work your way into heaven. You have to earn it, right? But no, that's not at all what Paul is saying, uh, for, for starters, even if we wanted to push the analogy further uh, than then Paul probably would want us to, here's the point. You don't get a victory just because you follow the rules. There are plenty of teams who follow the rules and still lose. There are plenty of cyclists who follow the rules and still lose. So Paul's not saying rule following is your victory. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that you cannot, as an athlete, cannot just expect to receive a crown if he's cheated and broken the rules his whole life. Christians don't get to just assume, oh, God's going to accept me to heaven if I've been willfully, intentionally sinning and breaking his rules all my life. So there is a world of a difference between saying that our works individually merit more and more salvation, which is work salvation, that's a whole different category of thought than simply saying, what is the kind of faith that God calls Christians to? Right? These are separate conversations. In the theological world, this is wrapped up in what is known as lordship salvation. And the debate is this, can Christ be your savior but not be your lord? Can he save you, but he saves you while you say, I want nothing to do with you or your law? Does Christ save that person? Can the faith that says, I want heaven, but I don't want Christ and I don't want his law, can that faith save you? Well, James answers that question. Turn turn to James chapter two. I mean, Paul answers that question in this analogy, but just to hear from more voices, turn to James chapter two. James chapter 2, he brings up this issue. Let's look just at verse 14. This section is famously known and titled as Faith Without Works. And here's what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? There's a rhetorical question being asked, so the answer is obvious, no. That faith cannot save you. Notice, he's not saying faith doesn't save you. He's saying the exact opposite. He's saying it is faith that saves you. But what kind of faith is the question he's dealing with. Can that kind of faith save you? The faith that has no works at all, can it save you? And the rhetorical answer is no. No. Verse 15, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So we see the Christian life is like an athletic life. We are called to a certain kind of faith. Not any old faith will do. We are justified by faith and by faith alone, but as Martin Luther famously said, we are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone. Christians, the faith that Christians are called to is a faith of obedience. Probably the the more famous verse where this is brought up often, though, is found in Matthew chapter 7. So let's go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 21. There are likely some in this room who even have this section memorized. Chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus himself speaking says this Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So just professing Christ as Lord is not enough. That in and of itself is not technically enough because there are those who will say Lord, Lord to Jesus who will not enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare them, I never knew you, depart from me. And on what basis? You workers of lawlessness. You rule breakers. You want the victory, but you disregarded my law. And in the process, you disregarded me, and you disregarded my Father who is in heaven, so what it proves is you never actually had faith in me or in my Father, you had faith in something else. So again, our individual works do not merit us salvation, but the kind of faith that does bring about justification is a genuine faith, and genuine faith is proved by obedience. It might sound like splitting hairs. It might sound like we're being nitpicky. It might sound like we're talking all philosophy and hypotheticals. But I would encourage you, we're really not. I'd be willing to bet, at the risk of sounding bleak, that this kind of Christianity, this this empty, dead faith, where I have no works and I disobey God's law openly, is probably the most popular form of Christianity in our country today. This is not just hypothetical. This is not just philosophizing as some people jokingly say right we are dealing with a real reality where we have millions of people in this country who if they get a census from the government they will check christian does that get them into heaven do you get into heaven because you check christian on a government census paul's answer is no it's not enough just to claim to be a christian because The millions and millions of people in this country who do claim to be Christians, what happens if you just talk to them a little bit or examine their lives? The second the Bible says anything about what they ought to believe and they don't want to believe it, they disregard it. And the second the Bible calls them to live in any way that they don't want to live, they just disregard it. So we have this completely liberalized Christianity, which essentially says, I'm a Christian and I love Jesus, but I'm going to make sure the Jesus that I love loves the things that I love and calls me to do the things that I want to do. So essentially what they're saying, even though they don't verbalize it this way, is I'll take Jesus, but I won't take his law. I won't take his gospel. I won't take his rules. I'll keep my rules, I'll keep my desires, I'll keep my passions, I'll keep my pursuits, and then I'll just allow Jesus some space in here to affirm everything I'm doing. That is a popular form of Christianity, and I would describe that as the kind of Christianity that sends you to hell. Those are the kinds of Christians that don't enter the kingdom of heaven. The kinds of Christians who say, listen, I want Jesus, but I don't want his exclusivity, I don't want his theology, I don't want his law. Paul would say, well, then you don't want him at all. In the same way, Lance Armstrong doesn't get to say, listen, I want to win the Tour de France and I'll get on the bike and I'll ride, but I'm not going to abide. I'm just going to reject all of these laws about blood doping and and performance enhancing drugs and keeping things fair and just. I don't want any of that. I just want to win the bike race. Well, they say, well, I'm sorry. It's a package deal. (laughs) You don't get to cheat and then expect to win. And we as people, we don't get to just disregard the law of God and expect to win. And again, that's not the same thing as meriting salvation. It's simply saying the kind of faith that Jesus calls us to is the faith that embraces all of who he is, not the kind of faith that nitpicks Jesus and takes the parts we want and leave the parts we don't want. It's a come, it's an all or nothing deal, just like your athletic quests are an all or nothing deal, either play by the rules or get off the field. We as Christians are called to pursue a single devotion to Christ, and we as Christians are called to pursue obedience to Christ. Faith without works cannot save, which is not the same thing as saying your works can save. But what kind of faith are we called to? We are called to a faith that loves God's law and obeys his rules. And when we don't, we repent and we accept forgiveness. But our overall disposition is just like the athlete. I am trying my best to play by the rules. And sometimes there's a flag thrown. (laughs) Sometimes you lose 15 yards. It's not saying you're going to be perfect. It's not saying that every time you do break God's law, you're now destined to hell. But it's saying that the disposition of the athlete is I am here to compete and follow the rules. And the disposition of true saving faith is I am here to compete and follow the rules. And when I don't, I repent, I accept forgiveness, and I keep pressing forward. But if you come to the table saying, I'm here, but I won't follow the rules, I want nothing to do with them, James and Paul together in harmony would say, that faith can't save you. That's not the kind of faith that justifies people before God. Christians pursue obedience. But then he transitions into this issue of a farmer. In verse 6, he says in verse 6, after saying an athlete is crowned unless he competes according to the rules, he says in verse 6, it is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. So what is he saying here? Well, I think Paul is telling us that just as the farmers are ultimately pursuing the fruit of their labor, they're, they're pursuing crops, Christians pursue rewards. It's kind of an uncomfortable thing as well, right? Like, are we're we not supposed to do things for rewards and benefits, right? Well, I don't think that's actually entirely true. I think that we are so afraid sometimes of talking, of looking like legalists who think we can merit salvation that we try too hard to explain away clear texts all throughout scripture that do in fact speak of God rewarding his people. In the same way that if a farmer works hard, he will receive the fruit of that labor, it's the hardworking farmer who receives the fruit. If the farmer goes in and is lazy and doesn't do anything, I mean, as anyone who has any history in agriculture, I don't have much, but I've lived in agricultural communities, I've known a lot of farmers, and I can tell you this, one thing they all agree on, no matter what kind of a farm they work on or a ranch, it's hard work. It's sun up to sun down, early mornings, manual labor outside, it's difficult work. And it would be easy to slack off and not do your job. But what happens when you slack off? Well, you can't expect the same crop. You can't accept the same fruit. But when farmers work hard and when they pursue with diligence, there's a reward there. They get more crop to feed their family with, to sell, and to make money. The hardworking farmer ought to expect to have the first share of his crop. So the farmers are essentially working for their own reward. They're working hard for a reward, which is really what all professions are doing, right? You work hard to get paid. But farmers work to receive the fruit of their labor. And Paul's saying Timothy ought to do that spiritually work hard and receive the fruit of that labor. Enjoy your harvest. And so, essentially, what I believe Paul is telling us is that in heaven, Christians will, in fact, be rewarded for their works. Heaven itself is not the reward for your works. Right, Justification is by grace through faith. So the reward here is not heaven, but it's different kinds of rewards within heaven. And, and I don't just get this from this text. I really firmly believe this is all over. The Romans 1 and 2 talks all the time about how God at, the, at last day will judge everyone according to what they have done. And in Romans 14, Paul says that even Christians, justified, saved Christians, will stand before what he calls the bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and give an account of their lives. The apostles are told that because the apostles had such an amazing role in the kingdom, that they will inherit 12 unique thrones and they will judge over the people in the resurrection. So the apostles have earned a greater authority in heaven than we have And and, and in James, it tells us that pastors, teachers will receive a stricter judgment. And 1 Corinthians 3 affirms this by saying all ministers will stand before God and their works will be tested by fire. And those who had good motives will receive a reward. And those who had bad motives won't get that reward. So I think pastors and ministers will, if they did their job well, receive more rewards. And if they didn't do their job well, will lose out on rewards. But the reward can't be heaven. In other words, we just have a view of heaven where it's just all of us just kind of in a big golden room uh, prostrate on the ground for all eternity and what rewards can be doled out there. But heaven's not like that. Heaven is still going to have communion and authority and structure and building and cultivation. Heaven is going to be complex and beautiful and I believe that there will be rewards distributed out there. I think that not everyone is going to have the same experience in heaven, so to speak. I think that we will receive according to what we have done. In the same way that when the farmer works hard, he enjoys a better crop, Christians are ultimately pursuing rewards. And again, heaven is not the reward. You can't earn that reward, but you can earn rewards in heaven. For all Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for their life, and he will judge us according to what we have done. Christians can anticipate rewards and this really should be a that should encourage us that shouldn't discourage or make us fearful that god not only has he given us heaven as a gift of free grace through faith but he is now willing and able and going to bless us and bestow more upon us this is beautiful so christians pursue devotion to Christ. Christians pursue obedience to Christ's law. Christians pursue the rewards that come with faithfully obeying and pursuing Christ. And then lastly, even though he doesn't teach us this by way of analogy, he tells us in verse 7 that Christians are to pursue knowledge or to pursue truth. He tells Timothy, think over what I say for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. It's, It's Timothy and Paul obviously value understanding God's word. I want the knowledge. I want the truth. And, and one of the ways that Timothy is pursuing this knowledge is by thinking over what I say. This, another way of call, saying this is meditation. And that can be another word that we maybe have a visceral reaction to. um, Because meditation, that word has sort of been hijacked by Eastern religions. And so when we think of the word meditation, we think of a certain posture and emptying ourselves and finding the divine light within us. And that's not the kind of meditation I'm talking about. The kind of meditation I'm talking about is what David used to practice long before these Eastern religions even existed. When he said, I meditate upon your law day and night we have to understand there is value to just mulling over the words of God. This is one of the reasons why Christians have have put such a high value on verse memorization because we can't always, you know, during our daily routines, we can't just walk around with Bibles in front of us all the time and meditate, but when we get these things in our heads, you can sit in some of those duller moments of life and meditate on God's word and just think about it over and over again. And and you'll be amazed at how, how much more understanding you will get if you just think about his word a lot. This is one of the privileges that I have as, as a pastor, someone who gets to preach, so I'll study a text all day long and then I'll go home and because I've been reading and studying it all day, it's just natural, I can't just get it out of my head. And so I'm thinking about the sermon text all week long and it's amazing how much insight that I have come to because I've just been sitting on the couch thinking and meditating over the text this week. Paul says, Paul's not trying to say what I've told you is coded and it's really hard to understand so you better think really hard and you might get it. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there is value to just meditating on the words of God. There is insight that can come from just stewing over and preaching these things into your hearts and memorizing them and and mulling them over. This is one of the reasons why we encourage Bible studies and getting together. We want to just be thinking about God's word all the time. And Paul says, if you just think about this, if you meditate on this and pray over this, the Lord will give you understanding. And that tells us also something really important, that all of our ultimate understanding ultimately is the gift and grace of God. It is God who, as the book of Acts says, had to open Lydia's heart up to the things that Paul had been speaking. It is God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it is the Holy Spirit who has to help us to discern the word of God for it is a spiritual word and we have to be spiritually minded in order to understand it. The Bible has this theme all throughout the Old and New Testament that our understanding and knowledge of God is ultimately a gift of God. He is the one who opens our minds and open our hearts to understand his self-revelation. So we as Christians, just in brief summary, and then we'll bring this all together, we pursue a holy devotion to Christ because the one who has enlisted us in this faith is worthy of that devotion. We pursue obedience to the rules. Just as an athlete cannot expect a trophy if he's going to cheat and disregard the rules, we can't expect our victor's crown if we're going to cheat and disregard the rules. And we expect reward. We expect a harvest. The hardworking farmer will reap the fruit of his labor. But as I said, these points are distinct, but in conclusion, I want to see that they are all related. They have similar themes. So for example, there's an issue of struggle and toil in all of these things. Paul calls Timothy to to, to suffer as a soldier. And then he talks about athletics. And we all know what comes to our mind when we think of athletes and trying to obey rules. We think of discipline, training, early mornings, right? There's, there's, there's rigor to athletic events. And he says, it's not the farmer, but the hardworking farmer. Your translation might say the toiling farmer. So there's this element of suffering and difficulty that's in all three of these analogies. And so that tells us that the Christian life, whether we like it or not, inevitably brings upon inevitable suffering and toil. Soldiering is not easy. Winning athletic events is not easy. Farming is not easy. These are hard work and it's sometimes uncomfortable work. And Paul wants us to understand that likewise, the Christian faith is not always easy. Sometimes we suffer. And sometimes we have to work really hard. And sometimes obeying God's law is a burden. It's difficult. Christianity is not easy, but in the same way that soldiering and athletics and farming is not easy, it's difficult, yet people still do it. If farming is so hard, why do we have so many farmers? If athletics is so rigorous, why are there kids all across the country whose dreams as early as they can remember is to be in the NFL or play professional baseball? Why do so many people want to play sports if it's so hard? And why does anyone in their right mind volunteer to be a soldier where they know at any moment in time they could be shipped overseas away from their family and killed? None of this stuff makes sense on the surface if you talk about it like this. Why do it? Well, because in each of these professions, there's what we call a teleological pursuit. That means the study of the end. There's something in all of these professions that they say is worth it in the end. There's an end goal here. Soldiers want the victory. Athletes want the trophy. Farmers want the harvest. They want the crop. They say the work is worth it because there's something on the other side of this work that makes it worth pursuing. And that is, I would say, is the ultimate point that Paul is trying to get us to see here. This is sort of the thesis, if you will, of today's sermon. This is what Paul wants us to see in all three analogies. That living a faithful Christian life will be worth the inevitable struggle. Living a faithful Christian life will be worth the inevitable struggle. Here's Paul's point. It's all worth it. The toil the suffering, the hard work, it's worth it. It's interesting, one of the false teachings that we deal with in America today, we, we, we've been talking about a little bit with the missions presentation, is what's known as the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel essentially is this, that if you are faithful, if you love God enough, if you have enough faith, if you do enough good things, God will pour blessings, material blessings on you right now. So if you're sick, then you can donate to the church and you'll get healthy. If uh, if you're poor, you can donate to the church and you'll be rich. If you have enough faith, you will do all this stuff. And here's the thing about the prosperity gospel: what makes it so wicked? If we want to talk about it in, in precise terms, is it's this? It's what we call an overrealized eschatology. It's an overrealized eschatology. What do we mean by that in layman's terms? Well, here's what we mean: the heart of the prosperity gospel is technically true. It's just misplaced. God does promise us joy and prosperity and blessing. He does promise us that. It's just not right now. The prosperity gospel wants to take all of these resurrection promises, all of these future faithful reward promises, and they want to put them in our place right here, right now. They want to say, God has promised you perfect health right now. He's promised you a lifetime of no suffering right now. And what we're saying is no. Right now is the toil. Right now is the struggle. Right now is the suffering. But there will come a time when we will prosper. There will come a time where you will never cry another painful tear. There will come a time when your resurrected body cannot get sick. There will come a time where you will not find yourself in poverty and need. You see, God does promise us prosperity but not yet. It's an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is a study of the end times. They're taking the end times and they're trying to make it realized right now. But no, Paul says it's the other way around. Right now is our time of toil and struggle and faithfulness, but there's a crop that we will reap from eventually. There is a crown that will be put on our heads eventually. There is a victorious conquest that we will see eventually. Eventually. And that is our future eschatological hope that makes the toil worth it now. Why enlist in God's army? Because victory is coming. Why compete in God's games? Because the crown will be put on your head. Why toil in the harvest of God's field? Because you will receive the fruit of your labor. You see, Paul is pointing and fixating Timothy's eyes to future glory, to future events, and when we see those things rightly, it makes all of the present difficulties worth it. Yes, sometimes it is so hard to pursue God's law when all of my friends and all of my neighbors and all of my family members are all going a different direction. They're walking down a different road it's a wide road. It's a comfortable road. It's a pl- road filled with pleasure and delight. But what Paul is saying is your road is filled with more pleasure and more delight and more glory. You just got to walk down it first. We take the narrow path because we believe it's worth it. Right? We're, not just, we're not just calling ourselves to suffering and hard work because these things are just somehow glorious. We just, you know, like some Eastern religions, there's, there's, you know, the more you suffer, the more holy you are. No, Paul is reminding us that being a good soldier in Christ's army, there's a victory at the end. Competing against the rule, according to the rules, there's a crown at the end. Working hard in the field, there's a harvest to reap at the end. Paul is trying to get Timothy, remember we talked about the overall, what's going on in the context here is suffering is coming. Persecution is coming. Nero is already chopping down churches in Timothy's church right now in the Roman persecution of things is in the crosshairs they're coming is it worth it will it be worth it to stand for Christ when Nero takes your head will it be worth it to stand for Christ if it costs you your job will it be worth it to stand for Christ if it costs you your family and Paul's answer is yes yes it's worth it so suffer for Christ Toil for Christ. Compete for Christ because the suffering and the toil is temporal but the reward is eternal. One Christian missionary says he is not a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Suffer for a while. Toil for a while. Work hard for a while and you will reap reward for all eternity. The Christian life is worth the inevitable struggle.